This special episode is a Workers' Rights 101 workshop. This workshop is part of the Green Socialist Organizing Project's 101 series of workshops. To learn more about the series, you can visit greensocialist.net slash 101s. Uh, welcome to our September 101 workshop. Uh, this month we will be talking about Workers' Rights 101. Uh, this workshop series is part of our 101 series that we do with the Green Socialist Organizing Project. Uh, each month we look at a different topic that is important to the uh, Green Socialist movement and give kind of a basic workshop on it. You can learn about our upcoming workshops and uh, see recordings and podcasts and slideshows from past workshops at greensocialistnet.101s. Um, so that's where you can go to find out more information. Um, like I said, this month we're going to be doing Workers' Rights 101. Uh, and then coming up through the end of the year, if you followed our this, this series in uh, 2022, you saw that we when we started, we did... Green Party 101, Eco-Socialism 101, Organizing 101, and then we, we repeated uh, throughout 2022. We did each one of them quarterly. Um, coming into 2023, we've done each of the Green Party and the Eco-Socialism and the Organizing uh, workshops, but we've also been interspersing other, uh, you know, other topics, like I said, that are important to the Green Socialist movement. Um, so for the end of the month in October, November, and December, we're going to go back to that old style. Uh, in October, we're going to repeat Green Party 101. In November, we're going to do Eco-Socialism 101. And in December, we're going to do Organizing 101. Uh, but for tonight, um, we're going to talk about workers' rights and, uh, you know, really focus on a baseline. Um, so a big part of the kind of inspiration behind doing this 101 um, is that if you if you watch Howie's podcast, Green Socialist Notes, on Saturday, uh, you've seen that a few times we've had Bill Barry, uh, who's a veteran labor organizer, and Natalie Menares, who's an organizer with the uh, Amazon Labor Union in Staten Island, um, on to talk about their struggles, you know, in, in Staten Island with unionizing in the Amazon. Um, you know, they, they've won the vote, but they haven't gotten the contract. Uh, they're, they're uh, you know, still fighting for that first contract, uh, still dealing with really, really atrocious, um, you know, working conditions at that Amazon warehouse as well as Amazon warehouses around the country. So that kind of got, you know, at the beginning of September, we had Bill and Natalie on. Um, so that kind of got us into a workers' rights uh, orientation for the month. Um, I'll also say we have a member of our education working group that's been working on a green socialist uh, like workplace organizing series um, where we'll go kind of work, walk through, um, you know, how to form a bottom up radical union in your workplace. Um, so we, that was being worked on and that led me to, you know, think about workers rights as one of our 101s. Another major, major, major influence for this work, uh, this workshop 
is that I am active on the uh, anti-work subreddit. Um, that subreddit started as a you know anti-work anarchist space, uh, but it has exploded to four million or two million members, and it's largely now, for better or worse, a place where people complain about uh, the working their working conditions and you know tell stories about horrible bosses and things like that. But one thing in my time being active on anti-work that's really come you know to light to me is that most workers aren't aware of their basic, basic, basic rights, right? We're not even talking about starting a union. Um, we're talking about, you know, wage theft and, um, you know, things like, uh, you know, working, what is billable hours and, and uh, the, how companies classify people as incorrectly classify people as independent contractors instead of employees, things like that. Um, so that's what this workshop is about, right? This workshop isn't going to be about how to unionize your workplace, right? That's that's above 101 level. That's when we're getting into more advanced organizing. Tonight's workshop is really going to be about those absolute basics. Um, so as we, you know, as I go through the presentation, I'm watching the comments. If you have, uh, you know, any questions, comments, I'll try to, you know, take them as we go, or or uh, come back to them at the end, as you know, as after we're finished with the president presentation. Um, I guess to start off, uh, my name is Chris Blankenhorn. I'm a, the Illinois Green Party's secretary, a former GPUS co-chair, and I served as the social media and tech director on the Hawkins Walker campaign in 2020. Um, I'm also one of the lead organizers in the Green Socialist Organizing Projects 101 series, uh, or education working group, which puts on this 101 series. Um, you can learn more and get involved with this Green Socialist Organizing Project at greensocialist.net. Um, but as always, we're covering a very, very deep topic. Um, so I'm going to get started. So workers' rights 101. To start off, well, like I said, this workshop is about the basics of the basics, right? This workshop isn't about, you know, how to effectively um, you know, organize a union in your work in your workplace. We're working on a much broader series, right? You, you can't really, uh, we could go over basics, but we really can't do justice to workplace organizing in, in an hour span. Um, so that's going to be a whole other thing, probably a multi-series workshop that we're working on. Um, but tonight's just about the basics of the basics, right? And so to start off, the first thing that workers need to understand is that as workers, you have rights in your workplace, um, and they're established by federal, state, and local level laws. Um, these laws vary very, very broadly by vacation, by location, right? Um, though there are federal locations that apply broadly. Um, that said, uh, while we, you know, don't have the level of workers' rights that some other nations do. Uh, there is a baseline that applies to nearly all workers. So that's going to be one problem that, you know, that we have to address in this uh, workshop is that um, what workers' rights looks like looks different in Arizona versus New York versus Illinois versus Texas, right, versus Washington versus Montana. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of specific details um, that are really location dependent and really situation dependent uh, that we're not going to be, you know, we can answer questions on them and try to suss it out. But um, overall, this is going to kind of be about that baseline. Um, so that baseline includes, but is not limited to, freedom of association and the effective recognition of the right to collective bargaining, right? We're not going to get into organizing unions today, but you can, 
right? It is a protected right. Uh, workers have the right to collectively organize in the United States, and that is with or without a union, which we'll uh, get a little bit, you know, get into a little bit later. Uh, the right to these baseline rights include the elimination of all forms of force or compulsory labor. Uh, there's a little asterisk out there uh, with the 13th Amendment uh, that allows for slavery and forced uh, labor, you know, compulsory labor to continue within prison systems. Um, but in general, um, in the general, you know, economy, uh, you know, you have the right to not be forced uh, to work. Um, the effective abolition of child labor, again, right, we're seeing that it, We've recently seen states passing new laws that allow younger and younger and younger kids to work. Um, we do not have, you know, top of the line protections in this sphere, but there are protections. Um, the elimination of discrimination in respect to employment and occupation, um, and then a safe and healthy work environment. And so while we do have these baselines, right, I, we can put an asterisk there for every single one. Um, there are things that we can talk about with every single one where uh, we either aren't actually receiving full protections or uh, we aren't seeing enforcement, right? It, it, it may be the law that you can't be discriminated against, or it may be the law that you have a safe and healthy working environment, um, but that doesn't actually mean that you have that uh, on the ground. And to go back to this, you know, point I made at the very, you know, the, at the beginning of that last slide, what your rights are as a worker varies widely depending on where you live, right? We've got federal level laws that provide a baseline protection, and then different states have different laws, um, you know, kind of depending on um, their, the, their different levels of protection, depending on their laws. And then there's municipalities that also have um, their own protection. So like here, so here's a couple of maps, right? That kind of show the diversity that we have across the states. Um, and then this diversity is one of, of laws is one of the things that makes it really, really hard to, you know, engage in national level organizing, right? Uh, much like running, you know, running for office as a third party in a third party means we have to deal with 50, 51 different election and ballot access rules. And that makes it hard for us to organize nationally. The same is true for labor laws, right? Because each of the states has their own specific laws, it makes it a whole lot harder, um, you know, to, to have mass action in terms of labor. But some maps on the up there, um, the one, the first one you see is state minimum wages as of July 1st of 2023. The more orange red a state, the higher their wage. Um, all of those light blue states have the federal minimum wage is their minimum wage. Um, next up is the change in union membership, right? And if you look at the change in union membership, you know, you've got deep red in, in, um, in Wisconsin where we saw, you know, big attacks under the Scott Walker administration on uh, collective bargaining of, of uh, union members. But even, you know, traditionally, states that are traditionally thought of as very progressive states, Illinois, Minnesota, New York, um, they're red which means that they're seeing a decline in union membership. Um, the next slide with the blue map is, um, is a, um, sorry, it's a, uh, is a map of pregnant worker fairness laws. Um, so where pregnant workers have varying levels of rights and you'll see, you know, right there, most of the country, we don't have, um, you know, strong rights supporting, um, you know, reproductive freedom. 
the first one on the bottom, ranking public sectors again, right? Illinois is a traditionally thought of as a deep blue state, um, but we are deep, deep blue with a D minus grade there. Uh, New York, again, another, you know, traditionally thought of, uh, you know, really strong blue state. It has a D. California has an F. So even our more liberal states um, have really bad uh, ratings when it comes to their public sector. Um, next map is looking at farmer, farmer, farm worker overtime, which almost no states have protections against. Um, and then kind of tying in with the uh, pregnant workers fairness laws, uh, the map on the bottom shows the countries that, ha and that have paid parental leave. Um, and of course, the United States is one of the only countries in the entire world that does not offer that. So these maps aren't so much to dive into, um, but just kind of an illustration of the fact that where you live is one of the biggest factors in determining your rights as a worker. And it's one of the big problems that we have in you know pushing back against capital is that we have to fight 51 different battles, right? The 50 states plus DC, plus you know fighting for things in Puerto Rico and Guam and the other, uh, the other colonies that the United States maintains. Um, so we have to fight these battles on in individual states. Um, we can't have a mass unified front and a mass unified organizing project because the laws and the conditions are so different depending on where you live. To start off with a couple early ones, uh, you know, or some kind of big name things that you need to do, you know, we need to think about. First off, at will employment. Um, every single state but Montana has at will employment though there are different exemptions and applications between the different states. What at-will employment means is that either the employer or the employee may end the employment at any time with or without reason or cause. So this means you can be fired and they don't have to give you a reason. Um, I actually read a, uh, a post on Reddit uh, this week about someone who worked at a car dealership. They worked at a Hyundai dealership. They went to the Toyota dealership next door and bought their car. It was owned by the same, you know, auto dealer conglomerate company, um, but they were fired as soon as they came to work with a hunt with a Toyota at their Hyundai. Right? They were literally fired because of the type of car they drove, and it's perfectly legal in an at-will state. Um, the the people often joke you can be you know fired because of the kind of car you drive, the kind of um, you know soda that you like, those those type of things, or you can be fired for no reason at all. Um, there are wide ranges where of ways in which at-will employment can be modified by a contract, but the baseline is every state but Montana is at-will. Um, and while this doesn't necessarily exclude businesses from accountability in terms of termination, um, being a violation you know, of other aspects of labor law and protections, so they can't fire you for... Um, you know, being gay, they can't fire you for being pregnant. Those are protected. Um, we'll get into protected classes later. Um, but what it does open up to is they fire you when you get pregnant and just tell you, no, there's no reason, right? They don't say that they fired you for being pregnant. They, they come up with another reason or no reason at all. Um, and so that's kind of the negative of at-will employment. It generally mean also allows them to, um, you know, have but it's it, on the, the flip side is it is allowed it's what allows us you know as a worker to quit and give no notice right 
Um, people often talk about two-week notice like it's some legal thing. There is no, unless you have a contract that states otherwise, and even then the contract can likely be called into question and most at will states, unless you know, in general, you have no obligation to give notice, right? You can quit and walk out today. It may burn the bridge. They may not be a reference, um, but you cannot be forced to give notice in most cases. Um, and I feel like almost everything said in this workshop kind of has that in most cases asterisk, right? Because we're dealing with so many different laws. Um, it's hard to talk broadly about them um, as a whole. Another big term that we often hear in labor organizing and, and workers' rights is right to work. And this is often confused with at-will employment because it's got this, you know, misleading name. Um, to be frank, the Republicans have always in the conservative, you know, flank of our society has always been better at you know, naming things, right? The, the, the estate tax is the death tax, you know, um, death panels um, uh, when they were passing the ACA, right? The, the Republicans have always been good at this type of stuff. And right to work is another example. When you hear the word right to work, it makes you think of at will employment, right? Um, that seems like how, uh, how that would play out. Um, but what right to work actually means is that unions cannot collect dues from non-union employees to cover the cost of the union negotiating collective bargaining agreements, which the non-union employees benefit from. Um, even before right to work laws were passed, um, precedent had been established that no one can be forced to join a union um, in most places, in the most industries. But uh, these go even further because it used to be, you know, outside of right to work laws, um, if you are a non-union member and a, you know, pay raise gets negotiated that you get, you still had to pay kind of, um, like administrative fees to fund the negotiating team that actually got you that under right to work, you can not be a member of the union. You don't have to pay any administration fees and you can, um, you know, just take the raise and, and continue on. So you can get all the benefits of union ownership without paying dues, without paying fees. Um, you know, it's the, the epitome of the free rider problem. Um, some, some stats on right to work. Right to work states have 36% more discrimination complaints. Um, again, we're weakening unions by, with these right to work states, so that's not surprising. Um, there is an, on average a 3.1% pay drop across the, uh, you know, state wages when a right to work law is passed. So when these laws pass, uh, almost immediately wages drop. Um, and then 24% of right to work of jobs in right to work states are considered low in low wage or low income occupations, and that's compared to 14% of the jobs in other states. So when we you know when we go at unions, when we hurt unions' ability to collectively organize, when we um, kind of untether workers from the union, uh, we see these negative impacts. Next up is the big one, right? Um, wage theft. According to the Economic Policy Institute, wage theft costs U.S. workers $50 billion a year. $50 billion every year is stolen from workers. Um, this can be through minimum wage violations, overtime violations, um, rest break violations, off-the-clock violations, and we'll get into these in a minute, right? Um, this number is more than every other type of theft combined. And most years it's more than every other type by a factor of two to four times, right? And you can see that in the chart. Um, 
when you combine larceny and burglary and auto theft and robbery, it still doesn't even come close to being maybe, it's probably about 50% of just minimum wage violations, right? So wage theft is a huge, probably one of the biggest workers' rights issues um, you know, that we face in this country. And on the other side of it, 50 million is stolen, or 50 billion is stolen, but they, only a small percentage of the money is actually recovered uh, through enforcement action, whether that be um, you know, through state government, state, federal, or local agencies, or through um, you know, suing in, in with a private attorney. Um, from 2017 to 2020, only 3.24 billion was recovered. Right, so every year 50 billion is stolen, and on average, every year less than a billion is recovered. Um, so we're talking about like a two percent or lower uh, recovery rate when it comes to wage theft. Um, a vast majority of workers experiencing wage theft never file a claim. Um, a lot of that is that they don't know how, they don't, they aren't aware of their rights. Um, I, I have been in many places where experienced, you know, HR people say things that are outright illegal federally. Um, you know, that they encourage workers, especially things like off-the-clock violations um, are really, really normal. Um, you know, minimum wage violations, tip violations, these are really, really common. Um, and a big part of the reason why is there's not much of a disincentive for these companies to not engage in wage theft, right? Wage, wage theft is often treated more like a civil issue than a criminal one. Uh, when your boss commits wage theft, they receive fines. It's kind of taken care of through an administrative process, right? If you as the worker took $100 out of the cash register, you're going to be arrested. When $50 billion are stolen from workers every year, no one's arrested. Right. Very few of them even even have to pay back what they've stolen um, and even fewer pay things like fines. Um, and even when they do get a fine, it's a slap on the wrist. Right. It's a very, very small fine in comparison to a number like 50 billion dollars that's stolen. Wage theft is, a, you know, broadly is a failure to pay workers the full wages to which they are legally entitled. Uh, wage theft can take many forms, including but not limited to minimum wage violations, which is paying the workers per, paying workers less than a minimum wage. Um, this can happen in overt ways where you just pay someone less than a minimum wage, but oftentimes it happens um, because someone's on a salary, like a manager at a fast food restaurant, and they end up working 60 hours a week and it drops their hourly wage to below minimum wage, right? You cannot... Um, and this is something that's true kind of across a lot of these, you know, issues that we'll talk about tonight. You can't sign away these rights, right? You can't sign a contract that says, um, you know, you'll be away, you know, you'll, you'll work for nothing, that you'll work for below minimum wage. Um, and these and the minimum wage violations are, you know, the largest percentage of all of this, uh, of wage theft. And it, it happened, you know, and we're talking about, you know, the workers that are, the most depressed, right? The workers that are the most exploited. Um, and they often don't know their rights. They, and if they do know their rights, they don't know how to um, you know, stand up for them, how to advocate for themselves, how to seek redress from different places. Um, you know, and that means that, and, that, and they're also often in a situation where they need the job, right? Um, they would very much like to file a complaint, but and even though retaliation is legal, much like wage theft, it's not very well enforced. 
Um, so oftentimes, even if they know their rights and they know what they need to do, they don't because they can't afford to leave, you know, to leave, to lose the job. They can't afford to be fired. They need to, you know, put food on the table, a house over their heads and take care of their families. Um, overtime violations are failing to pay non-exempt employees time and a half hours for hours worked in excess of 40 hours a week. Um, there is some, you know, some states do it by week, some states do it by day. Um, there's some little variation in how overtime is calculated. Um, but across the board, there are a lot of employees that are called exempt, um, which means that they're a salaried employee that doesn't get overtime who are actually, who actually should be categorized, um, you know, as, um, you know, non-exempt and thus getting uh, overtime. Off the clock violations with asking employees to work off the clock or before their shift. It's super common in retail and even in office buildings that people are expected to clock out and continue working, right? We close at nine, but you can't leave till you're done cleaning. That's illegal. If you're doing work that's required by the business that's mandatory, you must be paid. Um, and in 2022, um, you know, federal courts even ex extended this officially to even the, the booting on of your computer. Uh, which is one that I see a lot. I see a lot of times people will be told, you know, you're not pressing power at eight when you clock in. You need to be logged in and ready to start working at eight. And that's illegal. Um, you have to be paid for the time you press power um, on your computer while it boots up, right? So I, I work for a state agency and I have a, uh, you know, crappy standard hard drive laptop and from when i push power to be between when i can do things is usually 10 to 15 minutes but i must be paid for that time if the business wants me to be able to start work at eight the business either needs to pay me to come in it come in a quarter till or they need to get a fat you know a computer with a solid state hard drive that can boot up in less than a minute and then we can get going right but if you're doing work um if it's mandated by um you know, your bosses and Amazon just paid out a huge amount of money uh, to workers for uh, making them be off the clock and wait in line to get their bags checked to make sure that they weren't, um, you know, stealing anything from the warehouses. And they just paid out millions and millions of dollars in a settlement um, with workers over that. Right. So if you're if your boss says you have to do it, you're paid. Period. End of story. No negotiations on that. Um, meal break, break violations, again, in my time in the service industry and in retail, super common, right? That you just don't have, um, you know, you're short staffed and you don't get to take a lunch. You don't get to take your, you know, your allotted breaks. And that, though that's a, another case of wage theft, right? Um, if, you're, if your work day is, can, is paid with a half an hour, and this happens all the time, they'll say, don't take your lunch, but we're still taking a half hour from you. Um, again, wage theft, uh, pay stub and illegal deductions, right? Mess, mess, taking more money than they should, taking, you know, messing with your, with uh, the kind of withholdings and that kind of stuff. Um, tipped minimum wage viol violations is another huge one in the food industry. Um, you cannot confiscate tips from your worker. Um, you, if a worker works a slow shift and does not hit minimum wage, they must be paid up to that minimum wage, right? Because tipped workers are often receiving two something an hour. Um, if nobody comes in and nobody tips them, then the business has to pay them a, a, you know, an hourly wage that gets them up to that rate. One area where this, you know, tip minimum, where tipped wage violations come in is um, 
a lot of time, management cannot take your tips. Uh, management shouldn't be getting paid out in tips. Um, and that's something that happens in a lot of food, um, you know, food service industries where, um, yeah, I, I've worked places where basically the anything that someone put in our tip jar, jar the owner expected us to put in the till. Um, and that, that is illegal. Um, that's something that you, you know, they, they're not allowed to do. It's stealing the wages and the, the earned tips of the workers. Um, another big one is employee misclassification um, violations, and we'll get into this in a minute, a little more in a minute. But it's about mis, um, it's about misclassifying employees as independent contractors, which allow allows work, uh, employers to generally pay lower uh, wages. So, stay, you know, since we're talking about wage, another important thing to understand, and there, again, there's some exceptions to this. But for most workers, you are allowed to talk about your pay. <clears throat> this applies. <clears throat> this right applies to being able to talk to your coworkers about your pay, as well as anyone else. You can talk to the media about your pay. You can talk to union organizers about your pay. You can talk to government agencies like the Department of Labor about your pay, and you can talk to the general public about your pay. <clears throat> it is not only is it illegal for you to be punished for talking about your about your wage. It's illegal for employers to have a policy against discussing your wage, right? And so one thing that, you know, when we get at the end of this workshop, we'll get into um, kind of how you can advocate for yourself. But one big way that, you know, one big thing that makes advocating yourself a whole lot easier is if you can get your employer to put it in writing, right? A lot of time managers don't, they want to call you. And the, one of the reasons they want to call you is one, it's easier to apply social pressure that way. Um, but two, if they put it in text, if they put it in email, if they put it in Teams or whatever, you know, internal communication software your your uh, employer uses, that's now something they've officially said. Um, you can screenshot it, you can copy it, right? And so you really want to try to get these in writing. If your employer has a policy in their you know, employment manual saying you can't talk about wages, that's almost all, that's generally illegal. There's a few exceptions, but you should contact your, your the Department of Labor about that. Um, and furthermore, the employer cannot retaliate against you for discussing your wage. They can't change your job duties. They can't make your work life, you know, work life, life worse. They can't take official dis dis disciplinary action up to and including termination. And that's something that's kind of that's true for most of these issues, right? You can't be retaliated against <clears throat> for standing up for your rights. And that's not to say it doesn't happen. It absolutely happens, and employers absolutely get away with it. Um, but in general, it's against the law, right? They're they're just skirting it. They're getting they're getting one passed on people when that happens. So a big area where um, companies play games and, uh, you know, do things to their benefit. And one of the common forms of wage theft is the misclassification of employees as independent contractors instead of normal employees. When classified as an independent contractor, the employee doesn't, the employer doesn't pay taxes or provide the same benefits as it does to the employees. But in turn, the employee or the contractor uh, operates with a higher level of autonomy and control over their work, right? So you don't, you often get, um, independent contractors will often get a little bit higher of a wage, but that's because they're not withholding taxes. So at the end of the year, you're going to owe taxes on everything you've earned because nothing's been withheld, 
Um, <clears throat> similarly, in, independent contractors often don't receive, you know, healthcare benefits or other benefits um, that a full-time employee does. Um, the trade-off, because um, it's supposed to be a balancing act with these two classifications, um, is that that employee is supposed to have more control. And so three key areas where that, you know, can play out is behavioral. Does the company have control or have the right to tell the worker what they do and how, when they do it and how they do their job? If your, you know, employer is setting your schedule, um, that is a, uh, you know, a mark in the box that you're not an independent contractor. If your employer is telling you what to do and when, um, you're probably not an independent contractor, even if you're classified as such. Um, financial uh, are the business aspects of the worker's job controlled by the payer. Uh, this can include things like how the worker's paid, how their expenses are reimbursed, who supplies the tools, um, right? If you are not setting your own hours, if you have to provide your own computer uh, or, you know, things like that, or if they, but if they, if they provide all your tools, things like that, those are these are things that are making you see, making you more and more likely to be an employee and not a contractor. And then the type of relationships, um, how are the contracts written or the, the benefits uh, passed on? Will the relationship continue? And is the work performed a key aspect of the business? Right. So if you're doing essential work to a business as an independent contractor, another check mark that you're not actually an independent contractor. If you think that you are misclassified, you can fill out this form SS8 uh, with the IRS. It is the determination of worker status for purposes of federal employment taxes and income tax withholding. You fill out this form, you answer questions, and the IRS will give you a definitive ruling on whether you're an independent contractor or an employee. So if you find yourself in this position, you know, go fill out this SS8 form if you think you're being misclassified and they will give a, you know, binding decision. Um, that doesn't mean that your employer then couldn't say, well, we don't want to hire you as an employee. It's not will state you're fired. Um, but it, it sets you up to, to be properly classified. <clears throat> Another big one is workplace equity. You have the right to join with your coworkers and demand diverse equitable, inclusive, and accessible workplace. Uh, workplace equity with the right to not to be discriminated against in the workplace is protected by various agencies at the state, federal, and local level. Um, these include things like the Equal, Oppor Equal Employment Opportunity Com Commission, the Department of Labor, and the National Labor Relations Board, as well as many others. Um, in addition to the right to having a workplace free of discrimination, you have a right to organize and protest against discrimination in your workplace, and your employer cannot prohibit you from engaging in that activity or advocating for these rights. Uh, you also can't be um, um, retaliated against um, for taking such action. You know, if there's open racism happening in your workplace, you and your coworkers have the right um, to collectively demand change, and you can't be punished for that. You also have the right to you know, raise it as an individual, but uh, you're always better in collective action, um, right? We're, we're, the more we can unify together as workers, uh, the stronger position that we have in, the, in these fights. So here's the asterisk on that. Here's the catch with the right to having, um, you know, an equitable workplace, to the, the, the right to not be discriminated against. They only apply to what are called protected classes 
in employment. Um, applicants, employees, and former employees are protected from employment and discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, which includes pregnancy, sexual orientation, and gender identity, national origin, age, which only applies to 40 people 40 and older, disability, and genetic information, which can include your family history. Um, Again, you're protected against retaliation for filing a charge or a complaint of discrimination, participating in a discrimination investigation or lawsuit, or opposing discrimination in your workplace. Um, for example, threatening to, um, you know, threatening to, to have an investigation come regarding it. And so only these protected classes um, are have legal protections, and that, that's a, a major hole in our uh, our workers' rights laws and our worker protections, right? Um, when people use the term hostile work environment, these are the only people that can, that can claim that. Unfortunately, um, it is perfectly legal for, to have a, for your employer to have a toxic work environment. It is perfectly legal for your employer to be an asshole, right? Um, it, it's, as long as they aren't discriminating based on one of these protected classes or breaking another labor law, um, they can be total shitheads and there's nothing illegal about that. Um, like I said, it's a huge hole in our, our employment law. Um, but these protected classes do enjoy, you know, a level of protection from discrimination. Um, and so down at the bottom, there's a, there's a link that uh, gives you more information from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Um, tied to that, right, um, reproductive protections and uh, the Family Medical Leave Act. The United States is one of only seven member nations that does not pay some level of paid time off for new parents, right? Only one, only one of seven. Um, and even when you can look at the map, even when you look at the map state by state, right? Because while the location-centric, you know, legal system that we have in place for these laws is a problem to organizing, um, it also, on the other side, does in some ways allow states to enact, um, you know, more strict laws than what we have as the federal baseline. But when we look at this map, what we see is that states aren't doing that, right? Um, very, very few states have enacted their own uh, paid parental leave policies. The United States federally has no policy. Um, the dark blue in this map are states that have it already enacted. The light blue are ones that uh, at the time of the making of this map in 2022 uh, had passed laws that were not into effect yet, right? And while we do see some of the, you know, the states that are considered more progressive, California, Washington, New York, having these things, there are also major progressive states like Illinois and Minnesota that do not have any protections. Um, in Illinois, we, we just in the last year or so passed a law, which is where I'm from, we just in the last year or so passed a law that said uh, all workers must get five days of paid sick leave, right? That's as far as we've gotten um, in, in, in completely democratic controlled Illinois, right? Our, we have a democratic governor who's considered one of the most progressive in the country, and we have super majorities of Democrats in both our House and our Senate. Yet we have no paid protect, we have no paid family leave, and um, it does not seem like it's coming. Um, so we don't have 
paid family leave. What we do have federally is the Family Medical Leave Act, um, the FMLA. It provides certain employees with up to 12 weeks of unpaid job protected leave per year. Uh, it applies to all public agencies, all <clears throat> all public and private elementary and secondary schools, companies, and companies with over 50 employers, employees. Uh, these employers must provide an eligible employee with 12 weeks of unpaid leave each year. Um, there's a few reasons, like the birth of a child, um, the placement of a, uh, of a child for adoption or in taking on a foster child, uh, the immediate medical or the immediate care, met the immediate medical care of a family member, like a spouse, a child, or a parent. Um, and they have to be able to take the leave when the, uh, take this medical leave when the employee is unable to work because they have their own health condition, right? Um, and so these protection, the FMLA um, means that you you have, they have to maintain your health benefits. Um, they don't have to pay you, but you have to keep your health insurance going and you, they have to protect your job upon your return. Um, one thing that I just learned in the last couple of days is that if, for example, there's a, you know, a spouse, there are two spouses, they work at the same business and they have a child, they do not both get 12 weeks. If the, if both partners work at the same employer, they have to split the 12 weeks. Um, so that's one of those asterisks. Um, Antonino says, uh, one thing that really irritates me is that ageism is okay against younger people because they are not a protected class. Absolutely, right? We go back to that previous slide. Age is only protected under 40. So young people can be discriminated against for being young people. Um, it's only when you get over 40 that you get, uh, you know, that kind of protection. Um, that it, it only, The ageism uh, protection only applies to, to uh, the the high end of the, of the uh, spectrum, not the low. Immigrant worker rights, uh, you're protected under the National Labor Relations Act, regardless of your immigration status. Immigrant workers are afforded the same rights as naturalized workers and protected from discrimination, just like everyone else, based on their national origin. Uh, one example of this is that it extends to banning English-only rules in the workplace. Um, you know, that doesn't mean they can't say you have to speak English when you're speaking to a customer or something like that, but there cannot be a total ban, right? They cannot speak you, they cannot ban employees from speaking behind the scenes in their, in their native languages. Um, you know, and the, the, this right, um, to, um, regard, you know, to protection regardless of immigration status, uh, is guaranteed by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Immigration and Nationality Act and other laws, executive actions, and regulatory decisions. Um, so, while it, while I, uh, this is an area I don't think most people know, right? That um, it doesn't matter. Your immigration status does not matter. The labor protections apply, um, and I think this is one of those areas that we see, you know, possibly more than others, egregious violation, right? Um, it's pretty common knowledge that immigrants in this country are taken advantage of, are exploited, um, you know, and, and that their, their immigration status is leveraged, um, you know, to, to support the, that, that oppression and that exploitation. So it's really important that we, uh, you know, that people know this, that, that you can't have your, your, uh, your immigration status um, held against you 
or uh, used as kind of a blackmail against you to, to keep you in line. So like I said at the beginning of this workshop, we're not going to get into forming a union, right? That's one that's not a one-hour conversation. Um, I think we'll go a little long tonight, but that's not a one-hour conversation. That's not a one-workshop conversation. Um, that is a big, big, big lift. Um, and we're working on content on forming a union, but uh, that's not what this is about. This is about, like I said, the basics of the basic. Um, that said, it's really important to know that employees who are not represented by the by a union still have rights under the National Labor Labor um, under the NL, NLRA. Sorry, specifically the National Labor Relations Board, um, which is the body that's um, was created and empowered by the National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA, uh, protects the right of employees to engage in concerted activities, which is when two or more employees takes action for their mutual aid or protection regarding terms and conditions of employment. A single employee may also engage in concerted activity if he or she is acting on the authority of other employees. Um, so if you if you're, you and your coworkers band together, you have the right to collectively advocate for yourself, or you have the right to have one member of your of your kind of work group to advocate on your behalf as a proxy. Um, so you can act on the, on the authority of other employees, bringing group complaints to the employer employer's attention, trying to induce group action and seeking to prepare for group action. A few examples of protected concerted activities are uh, addressing their addressing employers about improving pay, uh, discussing work-related issues beyond pay, such as safety concerns with each other, um, and speak you know speaking to an employer on the behalf of other people about improving workplace workplace conditions. Uh, there's a link there, and once this uh, workshop is done tonight, I'll get. Uh, Tonight, I'll get you know a bunch of links and stuff put into the YouTube description. Um, it's the same thing when it comes out on Thursday as a, as a podcast. So on podcast networks, we'll get links and we'll have all of that available on uh, on the website as well. But you can go here and there's a link there that will take you to uh, see more um, kind of case examples of what conservative activity is uh, in the in the opinion of the NLRB. Like I said at the beginning, retaliation occurs when an employer treats applicants, employees, former employees, or people closely associated with these individuals less favorably for reporting discrimination, participating in a um, <clears throat> participating in an investigation or a lawsuit, um, opposing discrimination or illegal activity in their workplace asserting their worker rights, filing a complaint against their working against their worker rights, or cooperating with an investigation. Now, again, I said, like I said, I've said numerous times, that doesn't mean retaliation doesn't happen. Um, <clears throat> a big part of the calculus, in my opinion, for corporations and for um, you know employers, is that uh, you don't have time for these fights, right? Um, so if they if you raise an issue and they fire you for, um, you know, raising a workplace safety issue, for example, um, you have the right to, you know, seek redress, whether that be through the Department of Labor or a similar agency or through a private lawyer in filing a lawsuit. Um, but the reality is 
for most, you know, most workers in the United States are living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have a savings. They don't have the time, you know, when they lose their job, they've got to find another one because they've got to put food on the table and keep a roof over their head. So they, the, the employers really bank on you not knowing your rights, on you not knowing how to seek redress, and on you not having the time and the energy and the resources to actually pursue um, justice when, when things, you know, when retaliation or when illegal activity is taking place. So what do we do, right? I just spewed a lot of, you know, basics of worker rights. But what do we do when these things are violated? Like I like we like I talked about, you know, most of this stuff happens all the time across industries, across sectors. Um, ob obviously, low low paying jobs are worse. You know, obviously, service and retail industry are, are really really heavily involved in a lot of these things. Um, but when we see it happening, right now that we know our rights, what can we do? How can we advocate ourselves? advocate for ourselves and the first step for advocating yourself and making positive change in your workplace is knowing and standing up for your rights right so the first step like with almost everything is educating yourself um, educating yourself and making a stand there are government agencies uh, there are federal state and sometimes local worker rights agencies that can investigate violations and enforce relevant labor laws the exact nature of these agencies um, and which one you should call is really, really situational and location dependent, right? Um, government agencies can only help, can, can not only help you, but they can potentially help your coworkers. Uh, the one side effect of this is that it is often a very slow process, right? Um, and so that's one thing that I always tell people when I, I'm talking to people about workers' rights and advocating for themselves and, you know, filing a complaint with the Department of Labor, for example, as I always tell them, it's, um, you know, it, it's a slow process. So they're going to have to understand that this isn't, it's the government, so it's not going to move quickly. But it's real, even if you're quitting, right? Even if you're done and they've stolen your wages and you're not going to fight with them anymore and you're done, still file the complaint, right? Because it, while it may take months, it, it could get you those back wages. And maybe even more importantly, it can get your coworkers that are still stuck there. It can get past coworkers, right? Once one person files that wage complaint, they start digging. And all of a sudden, people who never even filed a complaint are getting redress. They're getting, you know, justice. They're getting uh, back pay and things like that. Um, so I, I always, always, always encourage people, you know, even if you're throwing in the towel, even if you're not going to go for private legal action, even if you're not going to stay in your workplace and fight, on your way out the door, file the complaint, right? Or maybe right before you walk out the door, file it while you're still an employee and then, you know, make your exit. But file it, right? raise the issue start the investigation because in the long run it could help you and it could help your your co-workers and it could help people that you never even knew who had been screwed over by that employer years before um it just opens a door that um that companies really don't want right they don't want to be investigated they don't want auditors looking through their books and seeing what they're doing um, especially if they know they're doing engaged in illegal activity which most of them are aware that they're doing what they're doing is illegal you can also take private legal action. Um, labor lawyers will often provide a private, a, a, 
provide a free consult consultation and work on a contingency where they get the percentage of the winnings, right? A lot of times, if you, because of the, situ the heavy, you know, situational and location uh, dependency of whether or not something's illegal or has crossed the threshold into a labor law violation, you really need advice, right? And labor law is one of those um, legal areas where uh, they will often give you that advice for free, and they will often work where they'll say, I'll take X percentage if you win. Um, so it's a little more accessible area of law oftentimes, because people who get into the worker side of labor law tend to want to help people, right? They don't want to say, well, I can't help you because you can't drop a $5,000 retainer for me, uh, knowing that you're a minimum wage worker who is screwed over by McDonald's, right? They know you don't have that money, um, so they'll often take you on a contingency. Um, collective action, right? If you're staying, you do not need to be in a union, like I said earlier, to collectively advocate for yourself and organize for change in your workplace. Um, this can be go from collectively advocating and negotiating, you know, around issues, like was mentioned on one of the previous slides, right, that you can actually go and, um, you know, raise issues collectively or as individuals, um, you know, to your employer and try to, you know, talk it out and try to come to a, a common agreement to try to come to a settlement. You can do that, but you can also engage in slowdowns, right? Um, you can, you can, uh, you know, work less effectively. Um, you can, you can take actions and it, again, it's all really specific to your job and your conditions, but there's plenty of actions that you can take that can put pressure on your employer, um, you know, to give concessions and to, to work with the employees to improve conditions, because if they don't, they're going to continue losing money. Now, you can get fired for these things, right? Um, when you're not, when you don't have the union protection, you can be fired for these things. Um, but the, like I said, 49 out of 50 states are at will. Um, so you can be fired for any reason, for without reason. Um, so remember, and, and this, this collective action can go as far as strikes, right? You can strike without a union. Again, it's a risk. They can fire you all from day one of the strike and try to hire new people. But um, there are often times and situations where that's not possible, right? You, this, it may be a situation where your employer can't afford to not run for a day, a week, a month, months as they restaff. Um, so, you know, a, a wildcat strike, it wouldn't technically be wildcat because there's no, wildcat strikes are when strikes happen against the union leadership's um, vote. But it would be like an unorganized strike can happen and they can be effective. Um, like any kind of a collective action, though, it really, really, really demands that you and your coworkers are unified and that you're going to, you know, really, really fight, the, you know, stand together and hold, hold the ground. Um, otherwise, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link and you can easily, it can all easily fall apart. And then again, you know, the final step in all of this, um, you know, in advocating yourself and the one that we're not going to dive deep into tonight is you can always organize a union, right? You have a right to organize a union. Um, like most labor rights and organizing, how this happens is really, really heavily situational and really location dependent. Um, what I always tell people when talking about forming unions is step one is a soft count, right? Who's with you? Who's against you? Who do you not want to even ask because you know they'll rat you out, right? But you can you can get start getting your soft counts through conversations. And um, I used to work at a school um, that we only had nine employees. 
Uh, and the main reason that we did not, I never tried to start a union at the school was over half of our employees most of the time were either family with the owner or related or in a relationship with the owner, uh, a member of the owner's family, right? So when, when I've got nine employees, but five of them are the owners, the owner's kids and the owner's kids' spouses, I don't think I'm going to win that vote. So I can't really start the fight. Um, in a different situation, I may be able to look at my nine-person, you know, workplace and say, "I've got seven us, seven of us in the bag. Let's let's organize. Let's let's have let's hold this union vote. Let's let the NLRB count it, and let's you know become an organized uh, workplace." A little deeper into the what you know what to do, and especially the the government agencies, um, the Department of Labor and similar state and local level agencies investigate violations and enforce labor law on a wide range of workplace issues. Uh, the U.S. Department of Labor is made up of a, law, a wide range of federal agencies from ones that do like data and research like the National Labor Statistics um, to industry specific agencies like uh, an agency that oversees mine safety um, to health and safety like OSHA uh, to veterans employment, right? Um, so the Department of Labor is a department that has, you know, a few dozen, a couple dozen uh, kind of work and sector specific um, agencies that all work around, um, you know, protecting workers' rights. Uh, in addition to its enforcement functions, the Department of Labor maintains a huge number of really, really, really good resources for workers. I've got a resources page at the end that we'll talk about uh, briefly that, that has some of those. Um, the National Labor Relations Board is traditionally more oriented towards union organizing. Um, but that said, it also protects broad workers' rights. Um, it, which of these agencies, like I said, it's a lot of it's situation specific um, on which one of these agencies is actually enforcing the law that's being broken. Um, sometimes the law being broken is under the purview of the Department of Labor. Sometimes the law that's being broken is the, under the purview of the National Labor Relations Board or OSHA. Um, so you, you, you need to figure out who you need to talk to. Um, generally, I would say that if you contact the Department of Labor and it's, not a, it's a workplace safety issue, they won't just say no. They'll say, no, you need to talk to OSHA. Um, so if you do go to the wrong one, you know, the people working at these agencies, even in conservative places where you wouldn't think that they would have a strong, um, you know, Department of Labor, the people who sign up to work in the Department of Labor tend to be allies to the workers, right? So even if you're in, you know, Florida or Arizona, um, when you go to the Department of Labor, you're, pro you're most likely going to, now they may be underfunded and they may be undersupported, um, so they may not be horribly effective at their jobs, but there are generally going to be people who want to help you, um, that want to help you navigate the bureaucracy, the, navigate the laws, and to advocate for yourself. Um, but the National Labor Relations Board is the federal agency in charge with overseeing organized labor, which is union activity, and protecting workers' rights. It was established in 1935 by the National Labor Relations Act and is empowered to protect workers' rights to organize. Um, part of its role in overseeing union activity is the NLRB is who counts union votes when the when votes happen. Um, so when you know Amazon workers in Staten Island or Starbucks workers across the uh, the country are trying to organize unions, when they have their vote uh, of their of their the employees of whether or not they should join, it's the NLRB that counts the vote and does, then oversees the election. Um, 
And I think it's really important for people to understand too, a lot of times when I've talked to people about workers' rights, they think a lot of this is new. No, right? Oh, this, these laws, the, NL, the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, was passed in 1935, right? It's almost a century old uh, that some of these baseline laws have been put in place. And things like you have to be paid for all the work that you do have been around, right? And so it's it was just in, but it was just in 2022 that courts expanded the you know the definition of you have to be paid for what you know for mandatory work to include booting up your computer, right? Because in 1935 there was no such thing as booting up a computer. So um, these laws have been around a long time and they've been evolved over time uh, by the agencies and by by lawsuits and, and by court decisions. What to do the equal Employment Opportunity Commission is responsible for enforcing federal laws that make it illegal to discriminate against job application applicants or employee because of those protected classes, right? Race, color, religion, sex, pregnancy, gender identity, sexual orientation, national origin, age, over 40, disability, or genetic information. Um, uh, Andrew Hager had asked the question, could a retaliation also help those who are I assume could retaliation also help means mean retaliation protection also help those who are physically and mentally disabled. The EEOC is going is to be, um, you know, the primary body uh, federally who's going to, you know, fight for those things, right? So if you are, you know, if you have some kind of disability, whether that be physical or mental or social or whatever, um, if you've got some kind of disability and you feel that you're being discriminated against, the EEOC is who you're going to look to, right? Um, and most businesses are required to have EEOC information and OSHA information, you know, posted. Um, and so, the you know, to, to kind of get to what I think Andrew's question was, could it help those of us who are physically or mentally disabled? The EEOC is what do, what uh, what who protects you there generally, although the other agencies most certainly have overlap into it. Um, so the protection already exists. Uh, retaliation is about when you file with the EEOC and say, I'm being discriminated against because of my disability. Um, and then your employer fires you or demotes you. That's where retaliation comes in. And all of these agencies have protections against retaliation. So if you file an OSHA complaint, if you file an EEOC complaint, um, and then you face negative impacts in your work, uh, all of these agencies have, uh, you know, opponent or have components to them to pretend, uh, you know, kind of legal standing that 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 retaliation is illegal. Um, so would it also protect us from prejudice of able-bodied and neurotypicals? Yes and no, right? <laughs> this is where the situational dependence really comes in. Um, where these where these laws really protect you is from your employer um but right you are protected from discrimination um based on those protected classes um and so this is kind of where the hot you know i said earlier hostile work environment isn't that your workplace sucks it's that there's discrimination based on protected class and there's rules on what rises to the level of discrimination. So someone, you know, saying something shitty doesn't 
doesn't necessarily rise to the level of legal discrimination according to labor law. Um, when you start adding things in, like you've asked them to stop being just, you know, being prejudiced, um, there it's been addressed. When you establish that it's a pattern, those things, you know, kind of each one of those boxes you check uh, opens the door further and further for potential action, um, you know, and especially I feel like we've really kind of seen a move in the last, you know, a few years or decades um, where, where businesses are moving in the right direction gives them too much credit um, because they're mainly covering their asses. Um, but I feel like in general, businesses have become better over time um, about protecting their employees from inter-employee prejudices and disputes because of the fact that if, you know, if my, if my coworker is discriminating against me for one of the reasons of the protecting classes, um, and it's, it's, I can establish that it's a pattern of harassment, I can establish that the workplace isn't doing anything, now that employers really open themselves up to legal trouble, right? Now I can file a lawsuit against them. Um, and so, we're not in a good place, um, but I do think we've been slowly moving in that right, you know, in a better direction. As you know, DEI, diversity, you call it diversity, inclusion, equality, and DEIA, diversity, equality, inclusion, and and accessibility um, becomes more and more the norm, especially in larger businesses. Now we see states like Florida trying to ban that stuff, right? So we're not all. It's not universal. It's very location dependent. Um, but the protections are largely about your employer um, and to get to the level of what is considered legal discrimination, um, it's, it's got to be kind of repeated and they've been told to stop and, uh, you know, reaching a level of harassment. Um, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, was formed to assure safe and healthy working conditions for working men and women. OSHA gives uh, the OSHA-BOASF, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, uh, gives workers the right to a safe and healthful working condition. It's the duty of employers to provide workplaces that are free of known dangers that could harm employees. OSHA is empowered to serve as the regulatory and enforcement body in this regard. So if you are a cook in a fast food restaurant and there's no air conditioning in the middle of the summer and your kitchen is 120 degrees, OSHA is kind of who... Um, you know, help will help you in that realm. Um, you know, if you're a steel worker and you don't have protections, if you work in an Amazon plant, right, or an Amazon warehouse, OSHA's your friend here. Um, same for like FedEx and UPS. Um, that's who's going to kind of deal with OSHA's who's going to deal with those safety um, issues. So like the Department of Labor is going to be your broad. Uh, the NLRB is going to be more about organizing. Um, the EEOC is going to be about uh, discrimination, um, and then OSHA is going to be out about safety. And like I said, all of these have a level of overlap, right? They're a Venn diagram that that isn't uh, doesn't have in you know isolated silos. Um, so, and and most of these also, I'll say, most of those types of agencies also exist on a state level and even a local level, right? So you can have these conversations, um, you know, with the, the federal and as well as state agencies um, to help you, you know, get moving on getting justice. 
you know, kind of next step after the, um, you know, getting us talking to state agencies. Uh, while there are, like I said, while there are governmental agencies that investigate and enforce labor laws, there are times when engaging a private lawyer for assistance with your situation may be necessary or beneficial. Um, that could be because of speed, right? You need an uh, you need action faster than generally comes from government agencies. Uh, that could become be because of the level of violation that you're dealing with, um, right? It may be it may rise to the level of a civil suit as opposed a civil lawsuit against your employer as opposed to just an enforcement action from the agency, right? Um, if something really egregious has happened, you you know you can file a lawsuit and seek damages. Um, the, the agencies tend to not deal so much in damages, but like back pay and making sure that what was done wrong was, was corrected, and then maybe some fines and things like that on, on, on the terms of the employer. But they're not there to get you a big payout. They're, get, they're there to get you what was owed. Um, and, and what was, and then the, the, you know, the fines and stuff are usually just a slap on the wrist that don't matter to most businesses. Um, so there are definitely times when lawyering up makes sense. Most bar states, most state bar associations maintain a list of attorneys in various areas of law that can help you uh, find a local labor attorney. So if you don't know of one in your community, you can usually go to your state bar association and they'll have, you know, a Facebook, Facebook like a list, not Facebook, like the social media platform, right? They'll have a directory, there's the right word. They'll have a directory of lawyers in your state and it'll usually be uh, broken down by labor type. So you can look and try to find a you know labor lawyer. Depending on your issue, you may want a lawyer that specializes in a specific niche, like workers' compensation, right? So if you got hurt on the job, you don't want just a normal lawyer, you want a workers' comp lawyer. Um, and it's important when we're looking at these lists and looking at lawyers to remember that there are two sides to labor law um, that people can focus on. There's the worker side and there's capital side. So you wanna make sure that you're contacting lawyers and law firms that operate on the worker side of things, right? You don't wanna, if you're just looking through, you know, labor law, labor law, labor law, don't just call the number, go look at their website. Um, it should become pretty clear, um, pretty fast. Um, that which side they're leaning right when you when you look at their website it should be pretty pretty obvious are they working for the companies or are they working for the workers um, and just make sure you're talking to a worker side uh, labor like i said earlier too labor attorneys are often willing to do free consultations and work on contingency uh, where they are paid a percentage of if the case is successful um, nathaniel gregory says how many court systems are there that ignore or go for the business and how do we deal with that um, the bigger problem is that most people never report, right? Um, it is a major problem that we consider labor law violations to be civil and not criminal. Like I said earlier, you steal a hundred, um, you know, you steal a hundred dollars from the, the cash register, you're going to jail, but your boss can steal a thousand and your wages and they're not. That's a problem, right? And that's a foundational structure to our, uh, you know, a foundational problem to our, uh, in our labor laws. Um, Going to court is always a risk, right? Um, you, you can have a judge that doesn't like you. You could have an unfriendly jury. Um, a lot of the times, these kind of things are settled, though. Um, they don't, uh, you know, they don't, they don't actually get to the to the court case. They get settled out of court, and everyone goes home. Um, but the reality is, when it comes, you know, court cases, the problem is more that 
we have bad laws and less that judges aren't following them, right? If you have a cut and clear case that you are discriminated against, it's really hard for a judge to actually say, no, um, you know, I, I'm not going to follow the law in this case. Um, and if they do, you have the appeals process where you'll go up to other judges, right? And there, so to actually, you know, go through the whole process all the way to the state Supreme Court or the federal Supreme Court and have it work out that, you know, no, you know, you have, you need a dozen judges to then fight with you about it. Good night, buddy. <laughs> I'll be back in a minute. Um, sorry, toddler's bed, toddler bedtime. Um, you know, so you'd have to have a dozen judges all go against the law. And that's really not that common. Um, what is way more common is that our laws are terrible. Right. Like I said earlier, you, it is perfectly legal for your employer to have to foster a toxic workplace. That, that That's not what we mean when we say hostile work environment. Hostile work environment only applies to the protected classes. So, um, you know, I, I am not someone who puts a whole lot of faith in the judicial system and our, in our court systems. Um, but the idea that the big barrier, you know, in terms of Nathaniel's question is more, do you have the resources and the energy to keep fighting? Um, you know, when, when you get that one bad court at the, you know, at the bottom level of, of the justice system, um, do you have the money to, to appeal? Do you have the time to appeal? Do you have the, the willpower to appeal um, and work your way through? And, and that, those, you know, those are class issues for, in, in, by and large. Right. And so that, that the ways in which our court system is part of the problem are generally systemic issues like class and just the fact that we, you know, from the beginning, right, look past the, the flowery words in our in our founding documents. And what we will find is a government that was you know, made by and for oligarchs to serve capital. Right. So from the very, very beginning of. Um, you know, of our society, our of American, you know, government and society, it's been pro-business all the way. When we talk about the flip that happened after the Civil War, that flip was mostly about which party was going to be uh, pro more pro-business. And we see it today, right? The Republicans and Democrats fight over who's better for business. Um, our entire government is oriented around business. Um, so the, the problem is more structural with um, our terrible laws and classist, you know, systems than it is, you know, having a, a judge that's just not going to follow the law. Um, a judge that's not going to follow the law tends to lose their job, um, you know, or, or, be, or be overturned um, more often than not. So to close up, right, I've covered a whole bunch. Um, like I said, this slideshow will be in YouTube comments later tonight. Um, it'll be the, um, the slideshow and a bunch of links will be on the podcast posts in a couple of days. This slide, it'll all be on our website at greensocialist.net. Um, so you can look at these links in a little more detail. But here, here's a, a beginning list of resources. I actually plan to ex continue expanding it. Um, but this is, you know, based off what we've talked about today, this is an initial list. The National Labor Relations Board, the Department of Labor, um, both have really, really great websites that not only help you as a worker if you feel like you've been wronged, but provide resources on organizing and things like that. You know, the, the NLRB has whole tools, toolkits 
on how to organize your workplace, how, how to run social media for your union, like how to do this, that, and the other, how to negotiate a contract. Like they, and the Department of Labor has similar, um, you know, resources that can really help you advocate for yourself. Um, specifically calling out the wage and hour division of the Department of Labor, right? Because if we go back and we look at the, uh, if we look at that slide about wage theft, right? At 23.2 billion um, per year, you know, that minimum wage violations, which is a lot of what wage and hour deals with. Um, but wage theft, like we said, it's $50 billion a year. Um, so the Department of Labor's wage and hour division is who, uh, you know, dives into that. So there's their link. Uh, family medical leave is another really important thing for people to know. Uh, and they've got, you know, benefits and toolkits on that. Uh, OSHA, uh, the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, Safety and Health Administration has, again, great, great, great resources. Um, same for the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity uh, Commission. And then a couple of um, resources that come out of the Department of Labor, um, the Worker Organizing Resource and Knowledge Center, uh, workcenter.gov is like a one-stop shop for, um, you know, resources and tools and help with, uh, defending your labor rights and then worker worker.gov is another one that's kind of a catch-all for worker rights resources right so those are places you can when you go to the nlrb like nlrb.gov or dol.gov or you know any of the other government websites there there's a lot of stuff right we like i said the department of labor has does you know a few dozen agencies under it so that there's just a lot you can get buried in it you can get overwhelmed um worker.gov and workcenter.gov are a whole lot more user friendly a whole lot more tailored towards the actual workers um, and what they need you know providing the resources that they need and then again um we've got the irs uh, independent contractor determination where um you know, if you if you're an independent, if you're classified as an independent contractor, getting screwed on your taxes, not getting benefits, but your worker, your employer is setting your schedule and telling you what work to do on a day to day basis, and um, you know, providing all of your equipment, then you can go fill this out and uh, get an actual determination from the IRS that says no, 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 this person is actually an employee. They need to be paid and treated as such, um, and so that's a uh, you know. That's another resource. Um, so with that, um, you know, like I said, this is this Workers' Rights 101 is part of our monthly 101 series. It's every month on the fourth Thursday, fourth Tuesday of the month at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, it's organized by the Green Socialist Organizing Project, which was founded out of the 2020 Green Presidential Campaign. Um, we mainly focus on political education, party building, helping electoral campaigns, and then issues campaigns. So if you want to get involved in our work, if you want to help us in our education working, working group, we would love it. Um, the more people we have, the more content we can put out like this. Um, we've got a great team that's been doing great work for the last uh, last few years, but you can go to greensocialist.net and sign up and... Uh, with that, 
I'm a little bit over the hour goal, but uh, thank you for joining us, everybody. Um, like I said, my name is Chris Blankenhorn. Um, I'm one of the organizers with the uh, Green Social Organizing Projects um, Education Working Group. You can learn more about these 101 series of workshops that we've been doing for the last two years at greensocialist.net slash 101s. Uh, there we've got past videos, past audio podcast versions of every workshop, uh, and the slideshows are linked. Um, like I said, for the through the end of the year, uh, we're going to go back to our, old, our good old standard from 2022. Uh, in October, we're going to do Green Party 101. In November, we're going to do Eco-Socialism 101. And in uh, December, we're going to do Organizing 101. Um, one of the things that we're going to do when we, while we're, you know, that's kind of a break for us uh, because we've already got those presentations, you know, put together and we, it's just about polishing. Um, so one of our goals for that the next three months while we're doing those is to take workshops like this, Workers' Rights 101, get the slideshow together in a, you know, um, and cleaned up, get notes together and be able to present green locals with workshops in a box where you can, you know, download the slideshow that you saw today. You can download notes. You can get a whole bunch of, you know, links, resource links to your own research, and then you can go out into your community. And you can do a workshop on uh, Workers' Rights 101 like we did tonight. You can do one on ranked choice voting like we've done previously. You can do one on decentralization. You can do one on the importance of independent politics. Um, so that's something we're going to be working on going out through the end of the year and into next year is taking a lot of these, these workshops that we've done and trying to make them turnkey uh, so that local green, the greens in their local communities can use them, can adapt them however they need, and can um, you know put them to use in, in, in organizing in their their community. So, um, thank you again very much, everybody. Uh, have a good night. This episode will be out on most major podcast platforms uh, Thursday morning, um, and you can go to greensocialist.net uh, to learn more about us and to get involved. Have a good night and uh, thank you for joining me. We got power.